this morning I will be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. While Paul was sitting, waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arabacus, thank you, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That was hard. <laughs> I had somebody come up to me earlier this morning and say, boy, I'm glad I wasn't the reader for that for uh, this Sunday because there are a lot of names in there. Um, but, uh, hey, if, if you've ever heard something that Christians uh, believe or have taught, and you thought, man, that's just crazy. Well, you're in good company because there were people uh, during this time when Paul was sharing this message that felt like, uh, felt the same way. What is this guy babbling about, right? Um, Acts 17 begins, and uh, where, where Mark was at is kind of in the middle of that passage, but where Acts 17 begins is where Paul is in Athens, and he's awaiting uh, Timothy and Silas to, to join him because he had been in Berea and, and they kind of rushed Paul out of there because of some of the persecution that they were facing. But while he was in Athens kind of waiting for, for Timothy and Silas to join him, he's you know, looking around the city almost, almost as a tourist, I guess, and you know, looking at the different landmarks and the, the idols that were around that city. But um, Luke 17 begins by saying that, uh, and, and this is Luke, he's, he's talking about, you know, he's, he's following along with, with, with Paul, giving the history of what's happening. And he says that Paul, it was his practice that he would often go into the synagogues in order to share with them from the scriptures, explaining how the Messiah must first suffer and then rise from the dead. And he's explaining from the scriptures, you know, this isn't New Testament, this isn't Second Testament stuff, this is First Testament, this is the first testimony. He's reaching, as we've seen over and over and over again, into the prophets and sharing with his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith that the long-awaited Messiah, the one that they were longing for, um, is Jesus. Uh, and that he was proving this and, and giving reasons uh, for why they should believe in him. And uh, in that text, it, it says that some were persuaded, uh, but others made trouble. And so that's kind of where uh, Paul is left off, where people are making trouble for this. And, and so we see in, in this 
even the, the aftermath of what's happening, we, you know, what, we, what we've been doing through this math of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we've noted that this movement died when Jesus died, but something breathed new life into that movement, and that, that breath of life was Jesus being resurrected and, and his Holy Spirit being poured out upon his people. And what we've been doing with this isn't necessarily going, you know, chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse, that kind of thing. Uh, we've just been taking a couple different things as we've been going through this over the course of the past month now. We'll be done by the end of this next month. But my encouragement to you is we uh, pay some attention to Paul's message out of Acts 17 that you personally would read Acts 16, 17, and 18, that this is kind of a reading plan uh, that we're on. And so we are... We are in Paul's message to the Oropagus. And what we've been doing with this isn't necessarily looking at the acts of the apostles. We've been looking more at the teachings of the apostles because it was their teachings and not necessarily their acts that were getting them in trouble. It was what they were saying that led to them being persecuted. And so Paul was brought to a hill in Athens, uh, Greece, and it was called Mars Hill. Maybe you've heard of this place before, but it's it's a Roman uh, name. It, it comes from the name Eris, Arapagus, meaning rock. And Eris was the Greek god of war, according to Greek mythology. And this hill was the place where he stood trial before other gods for the murder of Poseidon's son. It, it, it rises some 370 feet above the land below. It's not far from the Acropolis and the marketplace. And so Mars Hill actually served as a meeting place for the Oropagus Court, the highest court in Greece for civil, criminal, and even religious matters. And under Roman rule at the time, at the time of Paul, Mars Hill was still a very important meeting place, where, and, and this is where laws were discussed. And so you have these Epicurean and these Stoic philosophers. They, they hear about what Paul is saying. And some are like, oh, what is this guy babbling about? You know, he's talking about the uh, resurrection of this dead prophet. But others, they wanted to hear something more. They're like, oh, what is this new teaching? And so they invited Paul to the Oropagus to talk about this. And so just to give you some background as to uh, the beliefs of these philosophers at that time, um, Stoic philosophy claimed that the main purpose of life was to ascend above all things. They held a pantheistic view, which means that God is everyone and in everything. This is all about might be from... Um, and I'm not going to get his accent down right, but you'll probably know where this is coming from. Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? Hmm? Hmm? I think Steve could probably do a better impression of, of Yoda than I can. I won't continue with his voice, but he says this, And well, you should not, for my ally is the force, and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. I, okay, maybe I got to. Luminous beings, are we not? Nah, anyway. The crude, this crude matter, you must feel the force around you. Here between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, even between the land and the ship. This is pantheism. This is the definition of pantheism. And so um, their view would claim that everyone and everything is God. So, I mean, you know, it would include these, these idols that Paul was walking around, slabs of marble, a bird, human waste, kind of gross, 
um, but they could all be considered God from this point of view. And so other philosophical schools had dramatically different worldviews, which is why they would often come here to the Oropagus to talk about these things, because they just loved to debate philosophy and religion. And they were intrigued by what Paul had to say about Jesus being resurrected. And so when Paul arrives in the city and he's kind of looking at the different idols, he's seeing that it's just wholly given over to idols. Maybe things like materialism, where it's focused on things, or entertainment, focused on pleasure, humanism, focused on self-empowerment. And it's, it's not far from these idolatries that Paul found himself within this culture. So our culture and their culture were very, very much alike. So these Epicureans were disciples of Epicurus some 300 years before Paul arrives on the scene. And he would teach that it was just absolutely hopeless to find pure truth. He was more about finding pleasure through experience. They denied a providential power, and they held that the, wor- the world was uh, more effective mere chance. They, they asserted sensual pleasure to be man's chief good, and that the soul and the body died together. There was no afterlife, in a sense. Stoics, on the other hand, were, they were disciples of Zeno and uh, Chrysippus. These are great names. Uh, their philosophy was founded on human self-sufficiency. Does that sound familiar to our own day? Or even stern self-repression. Um, the Stoics held that matter was eternal, that all things were governed by irresistible fate. There was nothing that you could do to change your, your kind of lot in life. It was just, it was just fate. And so, though these two different schools had different outlooks, for both of them, the biggest stumbling block for them was the resurrection and the whole idea of the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul stands up in the meeting of the Oropagus and says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription on it, to an unknown God. And it's interesting what he says about them. Uh, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, you might, if somebody were to tell you you're ignorant, how, what would you do? You'd probably slap them or something. I don't know. You'd probably have some kind of remark against them. I think really what he means here is that, you know what, you don't, you don't know. I mean, you, you have this inscription to an unknown God. You don't have all the details. Let me fill you in on some details about this unknown God. I don't think he's like, boy, you're ignorant. I think he's just saying, listen, I think there are just some facts that you're ignorant of. And th- these are some of the things that I want to communicate to you. And so the, the, these people from Athens, they, they needed to be aware of, of their own beliefs. And, um, and, and so to do this, Paul, he doesn't rely on being subtle I mean, he just like Jesus with uh, the religious leaders of his day, Paul is just going to lay it out and say, listen, this is what it's all about. And, and so he, um, he sees this altar to an unknown God. And Paul, in his mind, the Athenians don't know God. They don't have a relationship with him. But Paul did, and he was going to clearly communicate who this God was and what he was all about. 
And in, in referencing the altar and its inscription, Paul is effectively saying that, listen, this isn't anything new. My ideas aren't new, though they may be new to your ears. Because God's plan for judgment and his plan for the salvation of all humankind has been something that's been prophesied for thousands and thousands of years. So Paul then teaches them the truth about who God is. And, and if you can, I just want you to imagine for a moment, I want, I want you to use some imagination, that you would listen to his message as if you were hearing it for the very first time. I want you, again, use your imagination, imagine living in a culture where anything goes. Okay? Just imagine, can you imagine? Just, I know you have to use, use your imagination for this, but imagine living in a culture where anything goes and imagine being in a culture where you can believe whatever you want to believe. Imagine living in a culture where it's fashionable to come against those who follow Jesus. I know it's hard for you to imagine this, but this is the culture that Paul is speaking to. And so he tells them this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he's stating that, that God has created everything, that everything we have comes from him. And, and, and we can't bind him. We can't house him in. We can't put a box around him. You know, he, he doesn't live in a temple. This is even something that, that David was saying. He's like, Lord, you want me to build a place for you, but, you know, even this temple cannot house you. Paul is saying that he has, in a sense, no need of us, but we need everything from him. We're utterly dependent on him, but he's not dependent on us. He's utterly independent of us. Our life and our breath comes from him. In other words, we originally exist because of him and continue to exist because of him. And this would refute the Stoics' belief their pantheism, which held that God is the world. He is nature. He is everything. But Paul is saying that God is outside of that and has created all of that. And I just find it interesting that for a Jew who believed that God lived among his people from the tabernacle days, and then when they built the temple, they had this picture of what it meant for God to live with them, to tent with them, to be with them, to abide with them. It's Paul who says, God does not live in temples built by human hands. But I love it that in a couple places, Paul is going to say that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So honor God with your bodies. Paul will, will go on to say that he made all of us as one blood, as in verse 26, that though there are many tribes and nations, there is only one race, the human race. The Bible nowhere divides us into different races. Racial division is a man-made division. We are, we're bound by God's determination of timing and location. We are, we live where we live because of, of God. We're made to live in different areas. Different nations rise up and they fall because of God's providence. And, and the task of seeking him is not difficult. I love, I love this next passage, which I'll get to in a moment. But this, this sovereign, this creator of the universe, he is available to us. He is not far from us because we can seek him out. 
He says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit all the earth. That they, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. Let's read all this out loud together uh, in unison. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. He is not far from any one of us. Let me just stop for a second. I know he's talking about where you live as in terms of, listen, if you live in Indy, he's not far from you. If you live in Mexico City, he's not far from you. If you live in Cuba, if you live in France, if you live in Moscow, he is not far from you. But what's also true is that he is not far from you if you live in confusion. Are you living in doubt right now? Are you living in questions? He is not far from you. Are you living in sin? He is not far from you. Paul says that he is close to us and all we need to do is to seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. It echoes the words of Jesus when he said, seek and you will find. Knock on the door and it will be open to you. Love that whole idea. And then Paul quotes their philosophers when he says, Another one of my favorite passages is actually something that he quotes from Epimenides. Everybody say Epimenides. Now you, can, you got one of these names down. So he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Such a great thought. Aratus says we are his offspring, which is what Paul is going to get to in a moment. But it's this Athenian poet that recognized that we came from a creator, that we are all his offspring. And so if God created us, if we are his offspring, and he did and we are, it, um, it, it's, it's actually illogical philosophically to, for, for something to be an inanimate object to make something that is animate, to make something that is alive. And Paul is saying that, listen, even your own philosopher says that we are God's offspring. For us to be his offspring, it means that he needs to be alive himself, that he created us. And so he goes on to say, he says, listen, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Wait, what? God overlooked that? I'll get to that in a moment. But I, 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 what he's doing is he is, he's calling these people to an act of repentance. And I've said this over and over again. Repentance is simply that you're going in one direction, you're doing a 180, you're going to move in the direction of, of God. And so there's this call to repentance. And, um, and so no matter what you are in and no matter what you are into, you can experience new... The direction of your life can change, which is a difference in, in terms of what Paul was saying and what the Stoics believed. Your past does not define you. I love the songs that we were singing that talks about the fact that God's, God's put us on a different trajectory, a, a different direction. 
And so, and if you remember, in one of Peter's sermons that we looked at earlier in the series, he said in Acts chapter 3, 13, repent that times of refreshing may come. And I just, I, I think about this whole idea that in the past God overlooked such ignorance. I think what he's talking about is just like there was a time when God was patient with the Ninevites when Jonah was called there, didn't want to go there immediately, and then gave probably the shortest sermon in history, but maybe one of the most effective sermons in history in terms of how many people uh, percentage-wise ended up repenting and turning to God. But the fact was is that there was a specific time that they had to be able to repent or else judgment was going to come. And Paul being in Athens is simply saying, listen, God's been patient with you. Now is the time, though, that God is calling on all of us, all people everywhere, to repent. And what's interesting is he says this about that day. He says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Uh, I've often heard, and sometimes it's from people who are very close to me. Um, sometimes I've even heard it from uh, people who are speaking or preaching on the radio. Just the longing for that day of the Lord's return, the longing for him to come back. Um, just this morning, Christy was telling me about this little buddy that we have. And so uh, about six months, I think, before we got here, I know I've told you about Peyton and Eli before. But Christy this week is going to babysit for, for Peyton and Eli. And she got a text from Danielle, their mom. And, and Peyton, uh, Eli has been waiting for this day. So Eli will be four years old in September. Peyton is two, I believe. She'll be three in this next year. Been, as he's been awaiting Christy's arrival to babysit, he said, it's been taking too many days for that day to come. And I think maybe many of us have longed for that day because of a variety of things that we've either been going through personally or maybe just what our world is going through. Maybe your prayer is like that prayer out of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And I find it interesting that in this place, where Paul is talking about the fact that there's going to be a judgment, it's actually on Mars Hill that they would judge different court cases. It's on that place that he would talk about the fact that there is a judgment to come and that all of us will have to face that judge. And God has proven this to everyone by raising this judge from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Again, sometimes when you hear of, maybe, you know, you're watching online and you're investigating things and you're, or maybe you're questioning things or doubting things and, you know, but you're in good company because other people have. I just say continue to ask your questions and express your doubts and find answers for, for those faith questions. But some of them sneered. But others of them said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. But there was this wonderful response that some of them mocked, 
Some of them said that they would consider this. And a few of them believed. And we find this to be the case that as those early followers of Jesus would share about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his teachings, that there were some that were like, hmm, that's interesting, and maybe that's all they did. Others who said, you know what, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And others who were like, oh, I'm all in. Just like the story from two weeks ago. The man with Philip saying, hey, there's some water. I think I just need to go get baptized. Where are you at in all this? Where are you at in terms of your own relationship with God? Is this maybe the, the first time or the first time in a long time that you would say, Lord, I, I've, been, I've been turning in a direction that's not a direction that you want me to go in, and I, I need to t- turn in, in your direction. Just like what many of these people had to do, Paul is giving this invitation that they would seek him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek him. Reach out for him. And Paul just gave that wonderful detail that it's not like you're uh, grasping, reaching. Oh, where is God? He's out there somewhere. No, Paul says that he is near us. Reach out for him and turn to him. Is, is there anything, we might call it an idol, but is there anything you need to turn from in order to turn to God? Father, that's really the, the invitation for all of us is that it's your desire to be face-to-face with us and that you continue to turn your face towards us even when we turn our backs on you. But Father, I pray that your, your love, your grace, and your mercy would actually lead us to repentance and lead us to a turning, lead us to a turning point. And Lord, we know that for much of this, maybe some of us who are brand new to the faith, maybe a few of us who are just investigating faith, that maybe just simply turning in the direction of investigating some more is the next step that you want us to take. But I pray, Father God, wherever we are in our relationship with you, I pray that we would take that next step. Father, thank you so much for the promise that you are near us and that you desire to be with us. We're so grateful for your love for us and your mercy and your incredible generosity. And it's in that generosity that's been pictured in you sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And it's in his name that we pray and we say, amen.